Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 6. It's where we left off last week. As you're finding it, let me say that... um, Think of this word, slavery. That's a, it's a poignant word. It's, a, it's an emotional word. It's a word that evokes this guttural reaction in us, and it should. Because when we think of slavery, we, we maybe think of the horrible, wicked ills of human slavery, and its various types throughout history. Or maybe we think of some sort of present-day trafficking of slavery and people for exploitive and wicked means. And those thoughts and those images produce in us this, this emotion. And, and again, that, that's, that's very understandable and right. But in our text this morning, Paul... The Apostle Paul is using the imagery of slavery. And he's speaking of a, a slavery, a type of slavery, that is actually more dreadful and f- would cause far more despair than any sort of contemporary or historical slavery that we can think of. And he contrasts it with a kind of slavery to joy that is far more spectacular and far more wonderful than any type of freedom that we can imagine here on this earth. And he's speaking to us about two kinds of slaves, that every person in this room fits into one of those two categories. So our text is Romans 6, 15 through 19. I'm going to read it here in a moment, then we're going to work our way back through it. And then, as is our custom on the first Sunday of every month, we are going to come around the Lord's table and receive communion together as a church family. Let me tell you, if you're newer or if you're just visiting for the first time today, that our custom is on the first Sunday of the month to remember the Lord's Supper. As the Apostle Paul and Jesus at the end of the uh, Gospels and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 using Jesus' teaching there as a foundation, Jesus has commanded us as Christians since his death and resurrection, to come around regularly to take bread and to take the cup as a meal that symbolizes, that points to his sacrificial death on the cross where he died for the sins of his people and then rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave and promises that he will come back to restore and finally redeem and consummate his work and his bride forever and ever and ever. And until that day, he instructs his believers to regularly, when they gather, to observe this meal as a kind of pointer, a kind of symbol of what he has done and what he will be coming back to do. And so we're going to do that today. And this meal, this, this small little piece of bread and this little cup of juice is, is for Jesus' people. And we intentionally mean to make you wrestle with that today, whether or not you are one of his people. And so if you're a Christian this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus, 
if you've turned from trusting in yourself and you've put your hope in Christ for your right standing with a holy God, you are welcome to come to this meal, to this table, to this communion table that we will come to together as his people, as a church family. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we, the last thing we would want you to do is to just kind of get caught up in the shuffle and to do it without really knowing what you're doing. And not because we're trying to single you out, but really as an act of kindness and love to you, we want you to wrestle with and consider the fact that if you are not a believer in Jesus, then everything that we're saying today it, it really doesn't apply to you until you do trust in Jesus. And we're praying today, right now, that the Holy Spirit would, would make you one of His own. So we're going to do that together as a, as a faith family. But let me read the text. We're going to work our way through it. I think that the message is kind of in two parts today. One, I want us to understand the text. And then secondly, I want us to apply the text. And we've only got a couple more weeks left in Romans 6. And I think Romans 6 is one of the most important chapters in the whole letter as to how to live the Christian life. And so I'm praying that even as we read, even as we have the Scripture up on the screen this morning, that the Holy Spirit that wrote the Word of God would do wonderful things that, that we don't even know is happening in the moment and that God would work in us. So let me read Romans 6, verses 15 through 19, and pray, and then we'll work our way back through it. Paul says this, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented yourselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, as we... As we open up and dig into your word that you have inspired through the Apostle Paul to write to us this particular portion of your word. We pray that you would do wonderful things. You'd open our eyes that we might see Jesus for the believers in this room, that you would convict, that you would wound and heal us, that you would spur us on to Christ-likeness for unbelievers that are gathered here this morning, whether they realize they're not believing or not, Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do and that you would make Jesus so beautiful that, that their hearts would melt and they would turn in faith to him. And Lord, as we're gathering, we think of other churches in our city that we're grateful for. We pray your blessing upon them, those that are preaching the gospel. We pray for grace to them and and joy in their gatherings, and salvation, and, and, and conformity to Christ. For churches in our city that do not quite understand the gospel yet, we pray that you would lead them into a good understanding of truth. Father, we pray for the people of Puerto Rico, and we know that they are suffering greatly because of this hurricane. We pray for the witness of the gospel 
to shine brightly there and for help and relief to come to those people. And Lord, help us now as we think about your word. Do, do beautiful things this morning that we, that we cannot do on our own. We are completely dependent on you. I am completely dependent on you. So help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul is saying here that there are two kinds of slaves, and I want us to look, just work through this verse, and then we'll, Lord willing, apply it to ourselves. Let's look at verse 15 again. He says, what then? Are we to continue, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. This is the same question that Paul starts off in, in, in verse, verse 1 of chapter 6. He says that, a true understanding of the gospel does not actually give license to sin, but it actually empowers us to fight sin. Grace is merely, not merely, a past tense reality that only forgives a person's sin, but it's a present reality that enables us to fight sin. In fact, we just sang this very truth. I think it was the the second or third song that we sang, uh, Grace Alone. And there, there was, I just wrote it down on my, on my notes here because we, we sang the very truth that we're staring at. And we, we sang together. We said that I will, I will stand by faith, by grace and grace alone. And then we all sang that I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. And I will reach the end by grace alone. And grace alone. And so the whole point of Romans chapter 6 is that Paul is fighting the charge. Remember, we said this a few weeks ago when we started in Romans 6 that Paul is fighting the possible charge that because we are not saved by our works or anything that we do, but by the free and radical grace of God, he is anticipating some people who might be saying, Well, listen, if it doesn't matter what we do, but only what God can do for us, then we might as well just kind of just sin grievously, sin abundantly so that more grace, the, the line of thinking is that if we sin more, then there's going to be more grace, which strangely in these people's minds would glorify God more. And Paul is saying, no, that grace is not a past tense reality merely, but it's an empowering reality that Jesus comes, transforms our lives, sends his Holy Spirit, and now we are enabled. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. Now we are ruled by a new master, and we are now not slaves of sin, but of grace. So he continues in, in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now just, just stare at verse 16 for a moment. And I think just seeing this, just seeing the inspired word of God written by the Holy Spirit through his apostle, just seeing that I pray that God would, would do something in our hearts today. He's saying here that, that we are slaves, look at his logic, as we present ourselves, we, we, we are born and made as creatures who will be mastered by something. And he's saying every human being is mastered by something, either sin, which leads us ultimately to death, or to Christ, to 
God which leads us into conformity to Christ, which is righteousness. What I, what I thought about when I read verse 16 this week as I was preparing is thinking about, is thinking about the end as a kind of motivation for the present. Have you ever, uh, certainly some of you that have been parents or certainly all of us that are parents, when, when we are wrestling with a child in some sort of obedience thing and, 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 and we're just wanting that child to think it through to the end, you know, and we're just saying, if you just, just stop for a second and exhale, and if you do that, then this will happen. Surely all of us have had those conversations. Either we've been on the ones giving it or we've been on the receiving end, or maybe both. If you do that, then I'm going to be forced to bring the heat. So stop antagonizing your brother. Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, he was a great preacher in America back in the 1700s. And as a young man in his early 20s, he wrote some 70 daily resolutions that he lived by. And he was kind of stern, and he was the guy that most of us only know him by that one sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And maybe you had to read that in like some American civil, you know, uh, civics class or something, and, and, and he has these pictures of like spiders dangling over the fires, fiery wraths of God. Well, actually, Jonathan Edwards, even as stern as he was and sort of uh, kind of melancholy in a way, was this wonderful preacher who preached about the glories of God and the beauty of heaven. But he did say in daily resolution number nine, he said this, and, and it, it feels a little morbid, but I think there's actually a lot of power in it. He says, just a sentence, we don't have it on the screen, let me just read it to you. He says, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. And I think what Edwards is getting at there is he's thinking about, I want to think about the end of my life and where I am at that moment as a kind of motivation for my present reality. And Paul is, I think, doing that in Romans 16, at Romans 6, verse 16. He's saying, think about where this thing is leading you and, and think about that if you go down that road, this is what's going to happen. And I think that that imperative, that, that, that warning is something that all of us need to heed. Even if we have been Christians for, for a long time, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, then you're a slave to that one you, whom, whom you obey. And it will take you down this pathway that will lead you to death. But if you present yourselves, if you present yourselves to God, it will lead to life and righteousness. And then in verse 17, Paul just, he just thinks about the end. He thinks about the goodness of God. And look what he says in, in verse 17. He just breaks into praise. But, but, thanks, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And then he says in verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So in verse 16, follow his logic here. He's saying that this is where this path leads if you do this, and this is where this path leads if you do that. And so there's a kind of conditionality there. There's, there's a real consequence. If you, do, if you run out into the street, you're going to get run over by a car. But 
that's not who you are. You've been set free from righteousness, so live according to who you are. Remember last week we talked about the indicative and the imperative, the indicative, this is what Christ has done, this is the proclamation of the truth. Now in light of that, live in this way. So in this, he kind of reverses, don't do this because this is who you are. Oh, it was football season, and, and that always kind of gets our juices flowing a little bit. And um, after about a seven or eight-year layoff in youth football, our, our second oldest son played when he was a little guy, a nine-year-old, ten-year-old, and now our youngest son is playing. And it made me think. I was overhearing our coaches yesterday motivate our guys, and he was telling them, like, hey, this is who we are, right? And I remember when my older son, Jacob, was, was uh, playing in his nine- and ten-year-old year, uh, the first year he played, he was part of a team, the Cowboys. And then in his 10-year-old year, I helped the coach, and he was part of the Broncos. And I remember one time at halftime, we were down, and I was kind of trying to motivate the kids, and I was trying to get them to understand who we were. This is our identity. We're, we're the Broncos, right? I'm trying to, trying to let them know that that's not how we play. That's not what we've done. This is not who we are. And so I said to these 10-year-old, 9- and 10-year-old Broncos, I said, that's not who we are. We're the Cowboys. I mean, I mean the Broncos. I mean, and it, you see this reality, though, right? We, we confuse who we are. And as a result, Paul is wanting to remind us of who we are. And he's saying that, but thanks be to God, you were once slaves. But now you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So you have been transferred from slavery to death to slavery to righteousness to God. And, and, and notice how he says how we are transferred, how we become one or the other. He says we've become obedient from the heart. And, and embedded in that language is all of this truth about how a person even becomes a Christian, how a person even becomes a slave of God. It's not because we were slaves of death and sin and obedience and we decided and we unlocked the prison cell and transferred ourselves over to God's kingdom. No, we had to be broken out. Something had to happen to us. We were slaves that were completely dependent on God's grace and God, by His grace, makes us alive. Listen to this hope, this promise that we see in the, in the, new, in the uh, Old Testament about this new covenant grace of God. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 31. And what's going on here in Jeremiah 31 is God has raised up a, a prophet named Jeremiah to the Old Testament people, Israel. And Old Testament Israel is because of their disobedience, they are captives. They are being harassed by these foreign armies and their enemies over and over and over again. That's really the story much of the Old Testament is Israel's disobedience and God's kindness to them to rescue them out of their captivity again and again and again. But the problem is they were in this kind of physical captivity, which was a kind of picture of our spiritual captivity. And God is promising them that there's coming a day when this picture of their physical captivity 
which mirrors their spiritual captivity, will finally and fully be gone, and they will be free. And God will, he will release them from their captivity, and he will cause them to follow him. So they will no longer be disobedient. And this this physical picture of Israel in the Old Testament and the way they disobeyed God is a kind of spiritual picture of the New Testament Christian's life, how we disobey God, but yet God in his grace promises to finally and fully redeem us. And notice how God promises to do this for Israel. He says in Jeremiah chapter, chapter 31, in verse 31, he's speaking about this day And I think he's speaking about the gospel. I think he's speaking about the work of his son Jesus and what Jesus will do. He's using the physical picture of Israel to point towards the spiritual reality of God's people in the new covenant. He says this, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, that I, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So do you see what's going on there? He's not saying, Israel, when you finally commit yourself, when you finally decide to start going to church regularly, or to go to the Bible study, or to do your quiet time daily, or to to memorize, not when you do those things, then I will come. He's saying that you cannot, and here's my promise to you, is that I will actually write it on your heart for you. And then we read, we won't take the time to read it, but in Ezekiel chapter 36, we see another sort of statement of this new covenant promise, where God actually says, in essence, I'm going to perform heart surgery on you. I'm going to take your dead heart of stone and I'm going to take it out and I'm going to put in a new heart of flesh, which is now enabled, now able to follow me. And I think that's what Paul is getting to here in verse 17. He's saying that this is how you went from slavery to sin to slavery to to righteousness Thanks be to God, God performed a heart surgery on you. He gave you a new heart. He gave you new desires. And now you have a new master. And that's what causes Paul to say, thanks be to God. Because he is remembering the gospel. He's saying that this is what God has done in your life. This, verse 17 is, 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 is the gospel itself. That we do not save ourselves, but God saves us. And he starts off that thought by just breaking out into praise. But thanks be to God. I, I, think, I think people like us that know the gospel well, hopefully, Lord willing, most of us, that see it, that see it for its God-glorifying nature and its man-humbling nature... I think that something that we need to remind ourselves of is this, this, this good theology should produce doxology, meaning the right 
study and knowledge of God should produce the right worship of God. And I think it would be appropriate if we just said thanks be to God more often in our lives, right? If we just, if just, just break out, like, thanks be to God. Can you, what if there was just a little clan of people in, in Columbus that just were so infused with the gospel that as they were infiltrated into their little areas of life, they just, as they just remembered God's grace in their life, they just had to stop and just say, thanks be to God, because he has rescued me from slavery to sin. In other words, what I'm saying is, is I think that people that understand good doctrine and understand the gospel biblically should actually be the most fervent worshipers of God. One, 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 thank you, brother or sister, whoever that is. Now, now you know, I mean, I, 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 I grew up the son of an Italian football coach, and I grew up uh, around a, a loud and vivacious dinner table. And so I just, I like, to, I like to shake it out every now and again. But, but right now, this is just, this is just I'm just giving you, don't, not, let's not manufacture it. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if we just, if we just were a little bit more responsive to the Lord? <laughs> Come on. I mean, in our, in our, in our, in our gatherings and, and in our life, in our life, in our life, think about how, Think about how that would teach our children, right? Think about how, think about what that would do. And I, I'm, 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 I'm preaching to myself. But thanks, when Paul considers the fact that he was once an obedient slave to sin and that God has done heart surgery on him and now he is an obedient slave to God, he stops midway through this little treatise on good theology and he just says, thanks be to God. I, I'm his and he is mine. Amen. And you have been set free from sin, verse 18, and have become slaves of righteousness. Think about this idea that we have been freed to another type of slavery and how counterintuitive that is to the American self-realization gospel, which is a false gospel. We have been freed to obey a new master. The difference between this master and the master that we've been serving is this master leads us into delight where the previous master leads us into death. This past Wednesday I was uh, teaching on, on grace alone through the five solas and it made me think of Augustine the great church father back in the late 300s and early 400s. And Augustine was the first half of his life a young man who was given to sin and, and lust and, and just carnality. And as he was wrestling with God, uh, something really incredible happened to him. And he writes about this in his book, his, really his autobiography called Confessions. And what in this book, Confessions, Augustine is remembering his life and he's writing really autobiographically about his experience with the Lord, looking back on how God broke through, how God rescued him, not how he worked his way to God, but how God rescued him and came in and broke through. 
And what happened is Augustine is writing this recollection of his salvation. He's talking about how he was struggling with sin and carnality and licentiousness. And it was destroying his life. And he was in a garden reading. And he heard this child. And Augustine even says later on, I don't know if this was really an actual physical child or if it was just the Holy Spirit just whispering these things to me. But he heard this child singing this song, take up and read, take up and read. And so Augustine took that as a sign that he should actually go into his house and read from the first verse of the Bible that he opened to. And so he opened to Romans chapter 13, verse 15, that basically says, put off the flesh, today is the day of salvation, and put on the Lord Jesus. And Augustine counts that as the moment that God broke through and released him from his slavery to sin and transferred him to his slavery to himself. And listen to how Augustine recounts that transferring from being a slave to sin to a slave to God. He says, During all those years, where was my free will? Let me just pause there and say this, just sort of American idea of libertarian free will, that we're just the captains of our own destiny, is so unbiblical. But friends, we are either slaves of sin or we're slaves of God. And Augustine's looking back on all these years of his rebellion as a, as a slave of sin. And he says, during all those years, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to, to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Listen to this next sentence. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. Oh, Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. You see what Augustine is saying there? He's saying that something came and broke in. He didn't break out. Something broke in. And the thing that broke in was not sovereign duty that leads to a kind of dismal religious drudgery, but sovereign joy that led him to true delight. I think that's what Paul is saying here. We have become slaves of sin, which leads to delight. And then verse 19, our last verse in this text, he says, I am speaking, I love this, Paul, it's just like he, he, he it's like he's being condescending, but he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it's actually like sweet and like encouraging. For I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, y'all ain't super sharp, and so I'm, I'm bringing it down to your level. And I think Paul is saying I'm using, I think what he's saying there is I'm using this kind of stark, this stark analogy of slavery to give you just a picture on your level, something that you'll understand. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
So just see this picture. Let's step back before we come to the Lord's table and just see this picture that Paul is painting for us here. He's saying that every person in this room and every person that has ever lived has been created and is, we are under something. We're under, we're either under the law or we're under grace. We're under this system that says that you must be righteous on your own and we can't be, or we're under grace. We're either slaves of sin or we're, we're, we're slaves of God. And he's saying the only way that you can go from one to the other is by God doing heart surgery. And with this new heart comes new desires to be obedient to God. And what the gospel does then is it fans into flame those new desires. It, it nurses, it feeds, it nourishes those new desires. So over the course of time, those new desires eclipse old desires. And now we are enabled to present ourselves to God as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, which is joy. That, that's Paul's logic here. That's his, that's his, that's his reasoning. And, and that's there so that we might be enabled to fight sin and to live for him. So in just a moment, we're going to come around this table together as a, as a faith family, and we're going to receive communion. And it's more than just a religious tradition. It's more than just something that we do on the first Sunday of the month. As we come and as we take this bread and as we take this cup, we are declaring allegiance to Him. We're declaring allegiance to His kingship in our lives. In fact, in, in verse 17, it says that we become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That committed there doesn't mean it's something that you decided to be committed to. It means that you were committed, like you were committed, like you were committed to prison. You were, com- it was, you were handed over to that, that new sovereign, and that new sovereign is Christ. And so when, when we come to this table, we, we are reminding ourselves, if we are Christians, that we have a new master, a new sovereign, and that he alone is the one from whom and through whom are all things, and he alone is able to renew our hearts, to give us strength as we remember and as we gaze on what Jesus has done for us and our new identities. That's not who you are. This is who you are. That Paul intends by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us strength. Do you see that? To give us strength. We sang it during the offertory. Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on Him. And when we come to this table, that's what we are intending to do. That Jesus alone The gospel alone, grace alone, makes us slaves to righteousness. And from that, we can present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. If you're a Christian, come to this table and be nourished afresh in the gospel. If you're not yet a believer, 
I'm, I'm just pleading with you to consider these words. To consider that you are, and this goes against every little, you know, these church growth things that they send you. I, my, I, wish, I wish I could um, show you all of the silly, goofy stuff that we get in the mail on how to grow a church. Make everybody feel awesome. Well, I, I actually think the Bible takes it the other way. In, in, in kindness and love and compassion, be clear that this is, this is who you are if you're not trusting in Jesus. And so I don't want you to think that just by coming here today and just by receiving this communion that somehow you're right with God. If, if you're not believing in these things, I say this with kindness, you're a slave of sin which will lead to your destruction. And I'm pleading with you right now not to reach down deep inside and find the greatest love of all within you. I'm pleading with you to finally, maybe for the first time, look outside of yourself and look to the one true sovereign joy who alone can break through. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And if you do that, then you're welcome to come to this table and feast with us and be satisfied by Christ alone. I'm going to pray and then the worship team is going to come back and lead us. And as I'm praying, I'm going to ask the ushers to find their places. And then when you are ready, you're welcome to find the usher closest to you and to receive, to take the bread and the cup. I encourage you to hold on to the elements. And then Robert will lead us to receive them together as a faith family. And as we receive together, may we be nourished. May we be strengthened. May we be freshly enabled by the grace of the gospel, remembering who we are if we are in Christ, that we are freed from slavery to sin and freed to slavery to God. Let's pray. Father, take these words and use them for your glory and our good. All across this room, clearly, certainly, there are people that are wrestling with all manner of things. We need to be reminded of who we are. And from that good news, we need to fight. We need to actually do something. From the indicative of the truth of what Christ has done, we must now live in light of who we are in Him. And may that produce in us joyful, spontaneous praise throughout our week. But thanks be to God who has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His Son whom He loves. May that be the loudest thing about us this week as we come up from this table. Now may we examine ourselves and see ourselves rightly in light of this good news and come to your table. Because Christ has defeated every sin. And now we can cast all our burdens on Him. In Jesus' name, amen.